I can't get enough. Got a space in my tackle box, just got to fill it up. More love, I can't ever stop. Don't got a basement, got an underground tackle shop. And here are the hosts of the Lore Love Podcast. John, Crappy Hippie King, and Tim, Tackle Box Beat. What's shaking, Lucy? Shaking is the present continuous tense of shake, which is the up and down or side to side rapid forceful movement of a thing. Sometimes I marvel at your limited vocabulary. I meant, how are you? Then it would be appropriate for you to ask me how I am, rather than to ask for word definitions. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'm a 9.468234. That is 0.023561 better than an hour ago, and based on my predictive analysis is 0.0837142 worse than I will be after this episode is complete. That's very precise. I round to seven decimal places when talking to humans. They seem to lose interest after that. John, you turned me on to the fact that in addition to Z-Man using Elastec to make their soft baits, the Strike King Lure Company licenses Elastec and uses it in some of their baits too. Yeah, that was great for me to see. I have a buddy, uh, you know, my buddy Tommy that takes me over that little private lake that he manages and we have a good time over there a lot. He He's a huge fan of Strike King, and uh, I turned him on to Z-Man Bates, and what do I know? He's made a trip all the way up to Rogers there in Independence or Liberty. It's clear over there in Missouri, and uh, got himself some Strike King using the uh, Elastec plastic. It was a, a real surprise to me. And I just came into possession of some of the Strike King Zero 5-inch stick worms. And, John, when the packages say that they are heavy salt impregnated, they are not kidding. Oh, what, like nine months impregnated? <laughs> These things have so much salt that each pack should come with a bottle of tequila. I mean, <laughs> it, it, they have so much salt. I'd be afraid to take the things ice fishing. If you dropped one of these on the ice, <laughs> you will be going for a swim. It'll be ice out. Oh, my God. That would be great. That's like that's like an old Bugs Bunny stick, right? Or, or a, a, a Warner Brothers stick of the, of the Roadrunner, you know, and they throw the Elastec uh, or the Z-Man, I mean, the Striking Zero on the ice. It's all salty and then uh, instantly turns to water and Coyote goes right in. It would happen. You could attract deer with the things. I mean, it's a salt <laughs> look. It's incredible, but uh, but they do fish really well. So, you know, almost all the Z-Man Elastic soft baits, they float, which I really appreciate. I think that's a really cool feature. But the neat thing about the Striking Zero is that the salt impregnation makes them heavier while they still sink slowly. So you can easily rig them weightless and still cast the things a mile. It's really a fantastic finesse bait. Um, The bass in my test pond love them. And I'll be testing out some of the other Strike King Elastec bait shapes in the future. But so far, a definite thumbs up for me. Well, I'm going to have to get me hold of some. I am a great fan of five-inch stick worm and probably my number one go-to. So... Just remember, take that hook out, Tim. Don't go throwing it in there with all that salt. You're just going to make a mess. And if you're doing a shot of tequila, take the hook out before you lick the worm. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, all right. (laughs) John, I recently interviewed John McClain, the author of the new book, Home Waters, and John's dad, Norman, was the one who wrote the very famous book, A River Runs Through It, that was turned into the movie with uh, with Brad Pitt in it. 
Homewater shares other stories about the McLean family and their rich fly fishing history. It's really a great book. I highly recommend it. Now, you would think from reading A River Runs Through It and seeing the movie that the only artificials used by the McLean family were dry flies. But John told me some great stories about fishing with lures, really funny things. John writes that when fishing with his dad, the point was not to catch any old fish in any old way, but to catch the right fish in the right way. In many ways, fly fishing is, as you know, is kind of a sport of purists and they don't like to use other fishing techniques. But one of the things that surprised me was the Reverend McLean, John's grandfather, trolled for trout on Seeley Lake. And he wrote that he went trolling for trout with a string of spoon-shaped brass lure flashers separated by cherry-colored glass beads to imitate a school of fish. He used a copper wire line to get the contraption down to the fish and wrapped the other end of the line around a slab of wood with handles. We use these cowbells, as we call them, until my father banned them as unsportsmanlike. Here's John expanding on the story. And he trolled for trout with industrial strength uh, uh, equipment. The line for the, the trolling outfit was on a, a piece of board with a couple of handles. And it was this thick copper wire that was wrapped with some <laughs> cottony junk. And so it would sink. And at the end of this, there was this, it was, you know, 14, 16 inches of uh, what we called cowbells. And there were these brass shiners uh, and about the size of a silver dollar. And they would spin and then the little red uh, globules uh, on, the, on the line behind them <clears throat> to give it some kind of flash. And you drag this thing through the, the water. And you, if you got a fish, you couldn't always tell. <laughs> Because the thing was so heavy. I remember one time we started out from across the lake. We were going back to our side of the lake. We'd had a day of fishing. And I was in charge of the trolling outfit. And you hold it. You hold the line in your hand so you can feel it. And it's jerking because these creatures that you have down there, the cowbells are spinning. So there's some natural movement to it. And we got a little ways. And I said, I think I've got a fish. Oh, no, the men said, no, you don't have it. Let me hold that. Oh, there's nothing there. That's just, that's just the trolling option. And this happens three or four times. And we're like, no, I, I can feel it. It's a fish. No, you're wrong. You're just a kid. <laughs> so we got back to uh, shore and beached the boat and uh, warped in <laughs> the, uh, the tackle. And sure enough, there's about a pound and a half uh, cutthroat right on the end of the thing. <laughs> you have to remember that my grandfather, uh, the Reverend McLean, was a farm boy. Uh, they had a farm in Nova Scotia, and they just had too large a family, and he had to move on. Uh, there wasn't enough there to inherit for all the sons. And he was by bent uh, a scholar and interested in uh, the life of the mind more than most farmers. But he hunted and he fished as a way of supplying food for his family. Anywhere in the world, a pastor is not terribly well paid, but in frontier Montana, where there isn't very much for anybody, uh, he was uh, dependent on that. Uh, and it was a very important source of uh, uh, his providing for his family. <clears throat> but we inherited all that stuff and uh, used to use it initially. And finally, my father just got horrified by it because the sport was moving on. It was becoming a real sport. We kept our fish and we ate them and they were important to us. 
but uh, when we figured it out uh, mentally uh, at the end of the year, we figured we probably got as much uh, back in the way of, uh, of food as we paid out uh, in equipment and other stuff, licenses and so on. So it was a wash. And he finally said, we just can't go on doing this. So, John, they called them cowbells. And here's the funny thing. I thought this was a name that John McClain and his family just made up for these things. But a few days after I interviewed John, I was looking at some vintage lures for sale. And guess what I found? Two packages of cowbells in their packages. And they're actually called cowbells. They're made by uh, Les, Les Davis Lure Jensen for lake trout trolling. And John McClain, I shared these with him. He had never seen these. He he thought they this was just a family name they had made up, and it's actually Cowbell is the brand name. Actually, I'd heard of Cowbells. Uh, I did not know it was a brand name. I thought it was just a total colloquial name. And of course, Lord Jensen's been making spoons and blades and this and bended metal and making lures out of it for decades and decades. So that's awesome. Still in package, huh? You got my uh, picker's uh, senses antenna up now. All right. Now, one of the things that kind of... Uh, hit me about what John said was he talked about fishing for food for the family versus catch and release. And I think there's a lot that has to do with lure design around this. When you think about the older lures and um, especially some of those big bass baits with the huge treble hooks and lots of them, as many as, you know, five, six treble hooks on a lure, there really was no thought of catch and release. And as I've been fishing some of these vintage lures, that's one of the issues that I have is, those big old treble hooks really tear up the fish in a way today's hooks that are much thinner yet still strong do. Uh, you are absolutely right. Uh, hook tech has come a long way along with the lure tech. And yes, uh, all kinds of ideas on how placement of hooks. And, uh, you know, a lot of those old lures have hooks coming out the sides. You know, they're not just hanging off the bottom, but they're for when that bass is swinging its head is to try to engage more hooks. I assume, um, you know, there's, you know, certain ideas to try to keep them out of the weeds here and there, but by and large, you're right. These are meat getters. is what we call them meat getters. These are hooks that are meant to get in there and stay in there and have a backup in case one comes out because you don't want to come home empty handed and not back in those days. And there was not only a backup treble hook, there was a backup for the backup and a backup for the backup. <laughs> for the backup. Absolutely. <laughs> John, here's what really surprised me. When uh, John McLean's dad returned home from attending Dartmouth College, he brought back a spinning rod, a bamboo spinning rod, and daredevils to fish for trout in Montana. Now, he was wildly successful with it until everybody started doing it. And then he went back to a fly rod. So while when you watch the movie or you read the book, it comes across as being fly fishing purists, they weren't always that way. And here's John telling the story. But he told me this story about uh, the spinning outfit. And in fact, we still had the rod at that time. It was a bamboo spinning rod. Uh, fiberglass hadn't been invented yet. Uh, and we had some of the old daredevils, just the plain old uh, red and white uh, daredevils. And the fish had never seen anything like that before. Uh, and at that time, of course, the Blackfoot was full of fish. And so he did extremely well. He was a purist. 
but uh, with uh, excursions to the side from time to time. Uh, he wouldn't do what I would do sometimes, which is uh, uh, in August when things are slow, you'd take a grasshopper fly, and then you'd go out in a field with your hat and swat a few grasshoppers and put them on to fly. So you had a, a double and a fish loved that kind of thing. He would not do that. That was bait fishing. Uh, <laughs> you know. That is so funny. Sometimes I think when you bring a new lure to a water, you have that success just because the fish really haven't seen it before. It's something something new. Well, I mean, it's a recognized technique, fishing off the hatch. Uh, you get about the fourth or fifth day of a big hatch and the fish are tired of it. You know, find something different. And you see a bunch of caddisflies out there, you don't try a mayfly or, uh, or sink a, a little uh, a merger. Do something something off what they're seeing all the time because they get as bored with the same food as we do. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, a week of peanut butter and jelly and a bologna sandwich looks pretty good. <laughs> like being in prison, right? Yeah. <laughs> so a spinning rod with red and white daredevil spoons. They must, really must have cut that part out of the movie versus Brad Pitt doing all the, uh, the fly fishing. Um, and I just think that's interesting that each of us, you think about your life as a, as a fisherman, how we change and evolve, you know, maybe the gear we fish with and certainly the lures we fish with as well. Yeah. Um, I would say here too, is that remember now back in those days, a bamboo spinning rod was fancy and I'll bet the reel he had with it was fancy. A lot of your reels were made by watchmakers and people like that, that, uh, put out reels that were very sophisticated and the spinning was for the light tackle. It was for the trout. So, uh, meeting some, probably some East coast swells that, showed him about maybe that was a thing going on with them as well, sneaking off to the brook trout stream. Two, I'd also say about fly fishing, it's funny when John Gearock talks about going out to Colorado in his hippie days back in the late 60s, early 70s, he uh, said everybody out there had a fly rod, but he goes, so many of the first guys I've fished with used it to fish with worms, and the fly rod was to make bait presentations, and that's what they used them for. They were technically not fly fishing, so... You're right about the uh, the small lures for trout. When you think back to vintage lures, you had the trout areno, and there were a lot of these really small lures that you could not cast with a spinning rod. You had to have a fly rod to get them out there, almost like a, a small popper or even a, a small flat fish and um, some things like that. So it was definitely, I think, more crossover at that point based on what the tackle would handle, what your rod and reel would handle for the size of a lure. So John McLean said that when it would really get slow in the summer, when those fish were kind of finicky, he would put a dead grasshopper onto a grasshopper fly. So my question for you is, is that bait fishing or not? you got a fly that's certainly an artificial, you know, the, the grasshopper fly, and then you're putting a dead grasshopper on it. Which is it? Is that fly fishing or bait fishing? Oh boy, you're trying to start arguments, aren't you, Tim? Huh. I am. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it is high. It's one of my favorite things to do is stick a little bit of a worm on a jig, or stick a little bit of a, a worm or a, or a maggot or something on a fly, and and ice fish with it or bluegill fish with it. Gosh, I mean, because you know that fly is helping because I've I've had side by side where I fished with the worm, I was doing okay. Fish with the flies doing okay. Put the two together and started doubling. You know, it was totally just doubling up uh, everything. Uh, I think the the fly brings them in, and then they, you get the scent and the look of the worm, and that closes the deal for you. Sometimes I, I don't know. I don't know, Tim. It's a it's a good debate. I'm gonna have to say, it is bait 
fishing because you are fishing with bait. Even though it's attached to a lure, I, I'm going to have to probably tip it toward bait fishing. Yeah, I wonder sometimes if it depends on how much bait versus how much of the rest of the lure. Like when, <laughs> when I was a kid and we used to put on a pork rind trailer, we never thought of pork rind as bait. But I guess technically, in a way, it could be. It's not something that the fish naturally eat. But uh, or you have some of these other infused baits. Um, I bought some beetle spins, vintage beetle spins the other day. And on the package, it said they were made out of 86% fish food. And I thought, well, I don't even know what that means. But if they're made out of fish food, are they an artificial lure? Am I fishing with bait? My head started to hurt. Yeah, yeah. You got to watch that sink. And it, it happens to me all the time. You know, and I, I really, I was just about to say that, you know, when I got a little you know, what uh, if they're the same size or, you know, yeah, sometimes, you know, usually when I'm jigging a worm, it, it's going to be the, the worm's going to be, you know, four or five inches and the jig's only only two or three inches. And then and the, the fly, it's usually a, a tiny little speck of a, a small piece of worm as I can get on there. So it's smaller than than the fly, even if the fly is like a number 14 or something. These are the great philosophical questions <laughs> of our time. <laughs> Yes, the great philosophical questions of our time, indeed. Then there's the, this question of, you know, matching the hatch, so fishing on the hatch. And then John talks about, unless you don't want to match the hatch, sometimes going against the hatch is a good thing. So I guess the rule is you want to match the hatch unless you don't. Well, I mean, it's a recognized technique, fishing off the hatch. Uh, you get about the fourth or fifth day of a big hatch and the fish are tired of it, you know, find something different. And you see a bunch of caddisflies out there, you know, try a mayfly or, uh, or sink a, a little uh, a merger, do something something off what they're seeing all the time because they get as bored with the same food as we do. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, a week of peanut butter and jelly and a bologna sandwich looks pretty good. <laughs> like being in prison, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the things I love about fishing. You can go in one direction with what they're eating, sometimes getting a, a lure to stand out, especially I think if there's a lot of bait fish, maybe you're using the same size bait fish, but a little different color. So those fish can kind of hone in and, and see it better. There's a little bit of contrast in the school works. Yeah, there's all kinds of things to be said there. Because um, I do think fish wear out if a hatch is heavy or they're a, a run, a forage run, whatever. Um, you know, I, you know, I've never seen white bass get tired of eating shad, though, but then they'll go off and rest. So I, I'll take that back. But yeah, so let's say you're fishing a hatch and it's just endless, whatever, sulfur mayflies. I don't know these things. You trout fishers don't beat up on me. I, but blue duns are coming down and, and, and you're doing real well at first. But yeah, pretty soon they've seen it, seen it, seen it. And I can't remember what outdoor writer used to use the party example all the time, but it's like being at the pizza party. And it's like, I don't want any more pizza, but somebody comes walking through with strawberry shortcake. You're like, okay, I'll, I'll make room for that over there. You know, here comes, <laughs> here comes a gut ball rolling down the bottom of the, the stream after the, all the mayflies or, or maybe just a big, huge, you know, grasshopper mouse imitation or something. Yeah. And then there's a big trout. like, man, I am tired of chasing mayflies, I'm, you know, but I could finish off with that, that mouse and <laughs> go get in my hole and stay there for a few days. So I'm going to, hit that or something, but you know, that's just it. A change up sometimes just wakes, wakes things up and, oh gosh, we've seen it again and again and again. I could tell, tell all kinds of stories, but yeah, I definitely know that fish can get full. They can wear out. They can kind of get bored. And sometimes uh, you got to go against the match the hatch rule to uh, wake them up again. 
George Cronenberger was a great fly tire and the yellow quill fly was one of his most popular patterns. And John McClane wrote that it was the first fly that he pulled out of his fly box. So I asked him, was that still his go-to fly? No, there were really two periods of my fishing career. One was when I was fishing with the guys, with my dad and George and my uncles and everybody when I was younger and uh, got up to about the uh, uh, fiberglass rod stage and had gone through the Perrine automatic fly reel stage and then gone back to the, the crank handle because they're better. Stop. And I kind of stopped right there. I kept fishing. I'd fish in the East and I'd fish in Montana, but I was using old techniques. Then I quit the uh, Chicago Tribune when I was 52 and started writing books. And I wound up spending enormous amounts of time in Montana, like six months out of the year. And during the good season when you could hunt and fish. And I had to learn fishing all over again. And I had to get into much better equipment, into the more advanced rods and reels uh, and flies and tapered leaders. We didn't use tapered leaders. You use a six-pound leader that was nine feet long. And all of a sudden, you had to learn new knots and, and all this kind of thing and new flies. And I started using uh, dry flies and found the excitement there. I mean, I'd used them before, but I'd never really been all day with them. Uh, and the excitement is that while you don't get as much action on dry flies, unless you've got a big hatch and they're working, uh, you can see it. It's a visual thing. And you have a very light leader. It's more delicate and the fight is uh, more precise and so on. My go-to fly was a number 14 or 16 parachute Adams after a while, rather than the yellow quill. But I still had a lot of yellow quills. And George had tied a bunch of them for me during those later years. Uh, and I had him do that deliberately. I said, no, I'm kind of running low here. And so he'd send <laughs> me another couple of dozen. And uh, I've got them. Yellow quill is what I use when nothing else is working because it always works. And it's what I'll use if I'm really ambivalent about a hole. I mean, there's, it's not the time for dry flies. It's the wrong place for dry flies. And try something different. Well, why not try a yellow quill? And it's amazing how well they work. I had my editor out in uh, Montana uh, while I was working on home waters. And he was uh, getting into the sport of fly fishing. And so I would set him up and leave him, you know, teach him a couple of things. And he taught himself a couple of things. I'd leave him alone. I put him on a yellow quill. <laughs> and he caught fish. I mean, simple as that. This is the fly that was going to get the fish for the guy who was just an entry level uh, in the sport. And he's since gotten really happy about it. And uh, uh, I hope to get him out there again and maybe move him up to a, an Adams parachute. <laughs> John, what's your go-to lure? And has it changed over the years? Yes. No. Well, you know, it, it has, I mean, the basic lure is a jig, probably a 16th or eighth ounce jig. And the colors change. Usually it'd be usually I start off with straight black, but anymore I like black and chartreuse. So minor change, same old dog. <laughs> um, I like a jig or a jig uh, with an overhead or an underspin, either one. Uh, as, a, as an exploratory bait, so when I come up to a pond or I come up to a lake or come up to some place where I don't really know what's going on, I know that's a lure that everything will, you know, hit so I can at least get an idea of what's happening. 
So why do we like to see fish take a lure off the surface? John talked about this, about fish and dry flies and seeing that trout come up. And as I thought about it, that's true for every kind of fishing that I know. If you're a large mouth bass fisherman, smallmouth, striped bass, tarpon, there's something about seeing fish take that lure off the surface. What do you think it is? I don't know. I mean, I know it goes down to your primal lizard or whatever you want to talk about your basic, basic animal, because there's nothing like it. And it always kind of amused me and, and made me wonder when I was a kid, you know, it's like, why are these dry fly guys making such a big deal out of this? Haven't they ever seen a bass do it? Haven't they ever seen a, you know, seen a, another type of fish do it? And clearly, you know, as they branch out and start fishing in salt and doing the thing they have, but um, I, and I know the dry fly can be a smash. It can be a sip. It can be a suck. It can be a, a boil. It can be a, it's all kinds of different things, but I think basically it comes down to that inner wolf, baby. I mean, there's nothing like watching stripers or white bass just cha, 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 and those fish are skittering across and you, you catch a white bass and he just blows shad all over the boat, you know, cause he wants to get in and eat some more and you're just, you throw him back and you're, you know, you, you feel it too. You can't stay calm no matter how often you've been through it. And I just watching pictures of it. Like when I see a bluefish uh, thing and, and the captain's like, Oh, I know they're bluefish because the seagulls won't land when it's bluefish because bluefish will bite the feet off. And I'm just like, man, that's, that's awesome. I mean, these fish are just out of control, baby. They're out of control. Yeah. It's gotta be the lizard, man. It's gotta be the wolf. It's gotta be you're vicariously somehow zoning in with that fish. And this is what we talk about. The undescribable. You know, how, why do you fish? How do you, what do you mean get in touch with nature? What do you mean you're in touch? Well, when that bass blows up on that topwater frog, you can't get more in touch with that. That's like, you know, that's like an electrocution, man. Bass mind and my mind slamming together. I mean, it's just rock and roll. You know, it's, it's there. It's just deep. It's deep stuff, Tim. <laughs> I love it. I love it. George would say that he would try to get the flies in the air between him and the sun, not to see their color, but to see their radiance, I thought this was really interesting. Kind of how they laid up was important to him. So I asked John how he would rank pattern, color, size, and radiance in terms of importance to the fish. Here's what John said. Well, you know, you keep finding uh, that if you put a little flash into uh, uh, the body of a fly uh, or even into the wing, uh, that it helps. It's an attractor. Uh, it picks up the sun. There's a little reflection there. Uh, and that's a kind of radiance. Some fish food is dull looking. There's no question. But the idea that he had was that it changes everything when you change the perspective and you get below the, he had an aquarium and he would fill the aquarium with water and then put flies in the top of it and set it up so he could get underneath the aquarium and look up. He says, what does it look like from the fish's point of view? Well, the penumbra around a fly, the wings uh, and the hackle uh, are going to pick up uh, sunlight. The belly of the fly, if it's, if it's resting on its belly, is going to be a little bit in shadow. You have to factor all that in. Uh, on the yellow quill, he did not use commercial yellow dye. Uh, he had his own dye. Mm -hmm. And when you look at his and then compare them to flies that are tied commercially, there's a huge difference. It's a much warmer color. It is, I suppose, radiance would be part of it, but it, it has a kind of a glow to it that you don't get with a hard uh, commercial 
uh, color. And his whole theory was, you know, the fish are there. Uh, they can figure this out too. Uh, they have wonderful eyes. This is what they do for a living. Uh, why not cater to them? Well, it's interesting to have an aquarium like that because uh, I've read a lot of research on what fish see. And one of the things that we forget is how little light actually penetrates the water. And so that what a fish sees, especially if you're fishing a wet fly, you know, a, a couple feet down is so different than when it's sitting in your fly box. Right. Or when it's sitting on the surface. Right. Or it does have a lot of sun. And, uh, some of that is uh, re reflected uh, and they can see it. Yeah. He caught an awful lot of fish with his flies. And uh, I think he had a, an important part of it uh, figured out. So what do you think about that? From your standpoint, if you looked at pattern, color, size, and radiance, what do you think the, is the most important as you're doing all this jig tying and creating lures, John? Well, for jigs, I mean, it's a little different than, than flies. Um, but I think under any situation, I think a, a real good point he makes is that, you know, you can kind of uh, move these priorities up and down. Uh, if you're fishing drives in a sunset and you know that fish is looking up and there's a lot of radiance coming down, you know, there's a lot of light passing through that fly and you've got the same situation with your swimming a jig in clear water or your bass fishing with a plastic somewhere, you're going to get some light transmitting through that bait. Now, as you've pointed out again and again, how rapidly, you know, light gets out of the picture as we move away from shore, we get deeper, the conditions of the water get more silty, the clouds are and so forth in the sky. So the more things that get between us and the light, the more things change, but radiance never gives up until that uh, last um, energy wave of light. And, you know, I pay attention to it a lot. I mean, I think that's why when we talk about blues and pinks, you know, why is pink and blue such a good crappie color? Well, a lot of guys would be like, you hold a shad up to the light or you're baiting up. I was baiting up a hook one day and the sun was coming up and the way that shine through that shad looked just as blue to me as any, you know, and they see that and they figure maybe fish is seeing it too. And then they catch a fish and it backs them up. So if the light is a big factor, you know, you know me, I'm a big, you know, on size, probably, you know, if I know they're feeding on shad or I know they're feeding on blue or something, you know, I can probably get in a good color range, but man, if I'm, you know, if I'm fishing a four inch and they're wanting a two inch, I'm going to be out of luck. So size is uh, probably my top priority. Yeah. It's really hard for me to look at those four things. I guess the biggest thing to me is, is the con does the lure have enough contrast so that the fish can see it easily? And that could, as you said, that could be the pattern. It could be the, the size, the color, the radiance, depending on those water conditions and things. Cause my thought is, if the fish can't see it, who cares if they don't, if they can't really detect it. And it's interesting because in a, my test pond, there's a hill on one side and I can get up there and I can sight fish to bass. And sometimes you would think, how can they not see this at all? But they don't, because as soon as I get it right in front of their nose, they, you know, they bring it in, but off to the side, they don't. And then there are other times when they'll really spot that lure, especially I'm talking about, you know, fish and worm, uh, plastic worms and things, and they'll see it a long way away. And so I think them being able to see that and see the movement and, you know, John talked about putting a little flash on a fly. And I think that's true for almost any lure. You certainly do it with your jigs when you think, talk about the crappy dueler and um, having that flash, it's, it's no different than if you see at a distance a, um, you know, whether it's at night or during the day, a, a flash in the distance or somebody driving with their headlights on, you just pick that up a little bit. So you look a little bit closer. What is that over there? And I, I suspect that fish have that same 
kind of technique that flash just gets their attention enough so that they can hone in on it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, that sort of iridescence is, is, is crucial. And I'm, and being a wire bait enthusiast, it's like I am. And we go back to the original story about the Reverend. I mean, baby, he had the flash. He was bringing it, you know, down deep, all that. If he can get any kind of light at all, you know, he's going to get something, but he's going to get a shape. He's going to get some disturbance. He's going to get some stuff on top of that. Uh, visibility and the ability to find the, the lure uh, is the reason, you know, you, you want to have solid black lures and solid white lures are very basic. Patterns are great and they turn me on and paint jobs are, are lovely, but I'm telling you, I just have some basic, you know, one tone, two tone type stuff, because sometimes those are less confusing and actually easier to see than things that are strictly trying to match. Yeah, I agree. And especially when you look at soft baits and you think about how popular a color watermelon is. Well, watermelon is just a dark green. You know, maybe you have a fleck in there or something, but it's a pretty standard dark color. But depending on what kind of water you're in, that dark color, almost like a black, you can really is going to stand out against rocks and other surfaces. And so you're going to be able to see it a little bit better, especially if it's like a sandy bottom, it really stands out. And that's always an interesting thing to really think about if the fish is coming up for it against the sky, you know, like you talk about using black lures at night, a topwater lure, so that because the, in the night sky, you can often see that better at night than a white lure. And so thinking about what that contrast is and what direction the fish is going to see it from is critical. Yeah, I hear you. The, the, the ability to see it is they can't see it, then they got to feel it. And that's why I like spinners. <laughs> <laughs> Here's John McLean talking about the never-ending learning process for anglers. I still have a, a fixation on learning uh, from others. And if I go out to fish with a guide and something like that, if I haven't learned something new or, or improved in some way uh, from a day with a guide, it hasn't been a good day no matter how many fish I've caught. And I think that that comes from that early experience, you know, really lusting to be good at this. I think that's one of the amazing things about fishing is that you can always learn something new. And that for me, that's what makes me feel like a 10 year old kid again. Is that and, yeah, experimenting. and there's so many ways, things to learn about, you know, you can learn about uh, insects. Uh, you can study it in the off season. If you're a fly tire, that gives you a whole different dimension. Uh, you can study the uh, uh, whole biology of fish. Uh, there are lots of political issues to get involved with. It is a lifetime sport. I love the fact that John McClain said that he had a fixation on learning new things. And I think that's what fishing really is all about, whether it's your gear, certainly with lures for you and me, learning new techniques. And to this day, he says, every time he goes out, he wants to learn something new and try something new, a new technique, a new lure. To me, that's really what makes it fun. I hear you. That is totally what makes it fun for me. I mean, it's what makes it timeless. It's what keeps... The young, I, you know, when they talk about a hundred year old guy out there fishing and he's just like a 10 year old, this is what they're talking about. He's still learning. He's still feeling those same feelings. You know, I do. Uh, it's one reason I love to design tackle and love to diddle around with, with lure. I just like to learn how things work. Yeah. Without the learning, I, I, if you could buy fishing success, I'd move on to something else because they're just, no matter how many apps and electronics and all this, there's going to be something there that got to come out of your head and your heart. Warning, warning, lure news alert, lure news alert. All right, this isn't news to people that tie flies and craft their own lures, cast jigs, and so forth, but you know what? 
fly tying, and jig making materials are in short supply all of a sudden. During the pandemic, people that already fish started taking up uh, lure crafting and jig tying and fly tying. People that already enthusiastically jig tied and fly tied and cast their own jigs started buying more materials and more molds and so on and so forth. And of course, we had lots and lots of people take up fishing as a pastime because it was a safe thing to do. It still is a safer thing to do. Get out there and fish. Welcome on board. But what this has done is leave a shortage of molds and do it. Molds is way behind. Hilts uh, has a lot of gaps in their inventory. And I'm sure any other mold company unknown to me is suffering from the same fate. Uh, So we got some good news here. Okay, friend of the Lure Love Pod and Fish Nerds fans too, those folks at Fat Guys Fishing announced they are adding lead-poor molds to their already extensive line of aluminum molds for plastics. Fat Guys Fishing is the project of Craig Mahan and his business partner Kevin Miller. I started following them on Instagram in September of 2019. Now, I don't make plastic tails. I have too many projects as it is. But the designs these guys come up with are so cool, and the stuff they turn out is just so awesome. They stay at the top of my feed ever since I discovered them. So when I saw here recently that they were adding lead pour molds, well, that really got my attention. Now, you might be saying, hey, crappie hippie, I thought you were the lead-free lure maker. Well, you bet, but lead pour is just a name for the mold. I mean, lead still dominates the market and all that. Let's not get hung up on the name. Besides, Craig, he likes to test his molds with bismuth. So he uses a lot of tin bismuth alloy over there and uh, as well as lead. And uh, how do I know this? Because Craig told me so himself. And that is super awesome because this company has great communication. So if you're looking for something custom, if you're looking for them to make you something a little special or a little different, they have the classic off-the-shelf molds. But talk to them and you can work out a price on something that is more to your uh, liking in terms of what you need done. All right, what's really got me stoked is that in their initial efforts to turn out some uh, lead pour molds, uh, one of the things they're doing is some Ned Head jig, uh, offset Ned Head. So you get the advantage of the Texas rig ability of an offset hook, but it's on a jig head, and they're doing it in round. They're doing it in a standard Ned Katie style, and then they're doing the shroom head too. Uh, they've got a source for hooks. You go on to this is called Ned's Custom Hooks or something on Facebook. I also have a hook supplier called Shorties uh, where we can get the hooks for these things. So I'm really stoked. This is the one that I've got my eye on, and uh, I hope to be able to start putting these sorts of jig heads out soon. All right, we plan on doing a more in-depth look into fat guys fishing in the future, but this is a big story right now. I wanted to give these guys a shout-out because I know we've got some lure crafters in the audience out there. If you're out there going, hey, my do-it mold, they keep putting me off. That's what happened to me. First, it was, you know, I ordered it in March, then it was June, then it was August, and it was like, we don't know. So... You know, I had to go a different direction. Uh, no shade on do it. It's a fine company. I have tons of their molds. But it's time for me to look to New Horizons, and Fat Guys Fishing is providing those horizons. Fatguyfishing.com. Check them out. Whether you're into plastics or into lead pours, they might have what you need. I know they've got one thing I absolutely need. That's it for another episode of Lure Love. Make sure to visit our website at www.lurelovepodcast.com and also our Facebook page. And don't forget to ask yourself this important question. Why buy one lure when you can buy 103? Lure Love, you've been on my mind.
enough lures to tie to the end of my line. Lure, love, can't I make you see? Why buy five lures and you can buy a hundred?